Hello and welcome back to The Classical Circuit, the podcast that deep dives into the intricate world of classical music and all that comes with working in it. I'm your host, Ella Lee, and each episode I'm joined by a brilliant guest from across the industry, discussing their best career high, their worst career low, and other things that show you a different side to the one you might see on their website. My guest today is the composer, broadcaster and writer Jack Pepper. Now, I've been trying to somehow condense Jack's professional life into a weenie intro for you, but it's kind of impossible to be honest because he just does so much. He writes not just classical orchestral works, but also musicals and pop songs. And he had composed for places like the Royal Opera House and the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra and the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra whilst he was still a teenager. And then in 2019, aged 19, he became the UK's youngest ever national radio presenter when he joined Scala Radio. And then he later went on to host shows for British Airways and some other radio stations. Um, as a writer, he writes for Gramophone magazine and various other major publications. And the big news, Jack has a book coming out, his debut book, actually. It's called Raising the Roof. The Colourful Characters of Classical Music. Jack, I hope I did that title justice. And uh, that will be available from the 6th of June 2024. So I'll leave the information in the show notes. It's worth saying that when we recorded this, Jack's um, one of Jack's biggest projects to date was underway. And that was a new music education campaign with Music for Youth called A Thank You Note, Thank Your Music Teacher. That culminated in two concerts at the Royal Albert Hall with three thousand young people coming together to perform music written by Jack in tribute to his piano tutor. So that didn't crop up in the conversation because it hadn't happened yet. But anyway, I remember Jack telling me about that project and he said to me, I think this will be an opportunity to inspire, inspire those kids, their parents, their teachers and, you know, people watching from the outside that actually do have the power to make a difference. And he was saying, if I can just show them the amazing impact that music has on these kids, I'd hope to inspire change in that way, you know, for them to just see it for themselves, which is just such testament to Jack's attitude and the way that he approaches things. Anyway, I was there and I felt the atmosphere in the room and I mostly just felt so happy for all the kids involved in that experience because it was so clear how excited they all were to be taking part in something that huge you know at the Royal Albert Hall as well um I remember being (laughs) I remember being exhausted the day we recorded this and yet the second Jack turns up he brings this really infectious energy with him so it was slightly chaotic (laughs) as you'll hear but in the best way it's so interesting hearing his approach to his own professional life Not just because he's done so much at such a young age, although that's obviously very cool, but because he has such an open and hopeful way of looking at things. And that's led to this really unconventional but exciting career for him so far. Um, We spoke about how he balances such a varied portfolio career. We talked about his one week at Oxford University and he also had lots of really good advice for young people, especially, or anyone that might be either starting out or feeling a bit stuck in their careers, maybe because of a lack of contacts or a lack of resources. So yes, one worth hearing. And I've definitely spoken for far too long now. So here is the episode. Jack, hello and welcome. Thank you for having me, Ella. Good to be here. (laughs) Jack, if anyone is the poster boy for a portfolio career, it's you. You're a composer, writer, broadcaster. You have all of these different strands to your career, both inside the classical music world and out of it. But is there one particular strand or discipline that you sort of most closely identify with? I always feel... I started as a composer and that is always the central kind of core of what I do. Being a musician, being a writer, being inside the music in terms of creating the layers of the music as the guy writing it, that informs everything else I do. So radio is a massive part of my work. Writing articles is a big part of my work. But I write the articles I write. I present the shows in the way I present them because I'm a composer. 
so I think you have a certain mindset when you create music. You're sort of on the inside or in the engine room that will always inform everything else you do. And, you know, particularly now, it's a necessity for so many musicians to have different strings to their bow, pardon the musical <laughs> pun, or indeed different pages in their portfolio folder. And, uh, you know, for, for me, it's, it's also a very rewarding thing because ultimately it's different ways of expressing the same passion the same knowledge, the same love. Whether you're writing an article, presenting a radio show, or writing a musical or a piece for an orchestra, it's all storytelling, ultimately, and it's all coming back to an expression of your feelings and the way this music makes you feel. So, yes, I have lots of different hats, but in a way I see it as I'm a communicator. Ultimately, I'm a storyteller. Mm. And radio is a different way of doing that, composing is a different way of doing that, but ultimately it all comes back to the same passion different sides to the same coin Mm, I love that and I'm inclined to say that people might really trust you because you've got that innate understanding of music yourself as well I think it's certainly helpful in live radio when you have sometimes a deadline of about five seconds uh, as opposed to as a composer your deadline can be five years uh, if there's a deadline at all sometimes you know it's 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 actually very rewarding and necessary I think to have the kind of the knowledge and the Mm. insider perspective at the drop of a hat you know it's funny people say oh you must do so much research for your shows and I go well yes yes in a way a lifetime of reading books and talking with musicians and writing music and thinking about it but at the same time if you said Jack right now you need to present a link that will introduce Schumann's Spring Symphony I could give you the spiel. I could come up with the facts, whether it's about the symphony or the composer or where I first encountered it or how it fits in with today as a radio show. I think having that knowledge as a composer does really, really feed into the broadcasting because you, you never know, and this isn't just if you're a radio presenter, as a person in the 21st century, you're going to be going into a lot of events where you're meeting people from lots of different walks of life and you never know where the conversation will go. And to have that sort of ammunition, if you like, conversation ammunition, where you've got those (laughs) anecdotes, you've got that knowledge. Uh, For me, it's security. Like, I I can go into a room or an interview with somebody I massively respect and feel like I'm not the smallest person maybe I used to think I was. When you're, you know, you're interviewing like a musical god, the the, the temptation is to think, oh, gosh, I know nothing. Mm. And actually, having that knowledge is confidence, it's security. So when you do go into those rooms or you do go into those concert halls, you feel like you can bring something to and ask interesting questions to get the best out of these amazing people that you're lucky enough to work with and, and speak with. Mm. I think it's important to have that knowledge. It's the foundation stone for whatever you do, whether you are a full-time player or composer or broadcaster. It gives you options when you have that knowledge as a foundation. Did you always aspire to have such a varied career or did that kind of unfold naturally? Well, I mean, I, I in a way, I haven't had a plan, Ella. What? In, in a way, <laughs> I've just followed my passion. And that sounds very cliched, but I've always been an ideas person. I'm always thinking about what next and where next. And my brain, I mean, there's a downside to this because my brain never switches off. Even, <laughs> you know, at night, I'm just sitting there thinking, oh, I literally, I will wake up from sleep and there will be an idea there. Could be an idea for an event, could be some music education campaign, it could be a song, it could be a lyric, you name it. Uh, so, you know, there's a, there's a flip side to always being switched on. Um, but from a very early age, there's, there's quite funny, there's a, a yearbook from my junior school when I was probably nine or ten and it said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, composer, presenter, writer, (gasps) policeman. (laughs) (laughs) At that point, I thought, okay, okay, you can't do everything. Can't do everything, Jack. Unrealistic. Uh, I've got goosebumps. But it was, so I I always wanted to do lots of different things and, and, and getting into music was, it was always one aspect of using the imagination for me. So when I was four, five, six years old, I'd watch a film and then I would recreate a scene from the film. I would literally like stage it at home. I'd get all these VCR tapes and put them on their side and create a little wall and suddenly I was in the car or I was, you know, I would create the set. Um, I would create my little DVD cases with my own story, my own imaginary cast on the back. Even the age ratings, 12 contains moderate violence. Murders in Miami, directed by Jack Pepper and uh, scored by Jack Pepper, written by Jack Pepper. It was just, you know, it was a massive ego trip for a five-year-old. But, um, but the thing is, it, music was another aspect of that. Mm-hmm. So I would hear a song and then I think I love the way that song makes me feel 
how can I replicate that feeling with my own song? Or if I heard something I didn't like so much, I would ask myself, literally at the age of five or six, why? Why do I not like that so much? Why is it not reaching me the way that other song or symphony did? So from a very early age, I was thinking, I suppose, across disciplines. Mm -hmm. And it was all about using the imagination. You know, the imagination has no walls, it has no boundaries. So if you're really using it, hopefully you are doing lots of different things. Well, switched on from day one. Are you secretly a policeman? <laughs> is that like well, a backup career that you have under a separate name? Well, I do have an unhealthy interest because in, this, this, this is this is this is funny actually because because when I've had an idea for like an event and then of course because it was my idea I've then sort of been roped into actually facilitating it and organising. <laughs> Damn it! It. <laughs> um, it has. When I was about eighteen or nineteen, I did a. I, I was helping a military charity, and I realised very quickly that if they wanted to fundraise at a gala dinner, which was always the plan they wouldn't raise very much money if they all kept within their hierarchy because they're very sort of, you know, only refer to the person right above you. So nobody was talking to anybody. It was the, the least transparent, you know, <laughs> system, if I can say that. So I realised, you know, I'm 17, 18, I can contact people and I'll say I'm a 17, 18-year-old working with this charity, appreciate if it's not appropriate, but would you be interested in supporting the charity? Anyway, I ended up inviting the Prime Minister, I ended up inviting royalty, but anyway, there's a story here, Alec, because, <laughs> of course, they all came with bodyguards. So I was in heaven because suddenly I was thinking it was totally irrelevant to my career. But no, you say, am I a policeman? No, but I worked with a lot of them and I had to go on like security recades around the venue and point out escape routes. And all that. So for about six months in my life, Ella, I felt like a policeman, but I wasn't actually. So it's you've really ticked all those boxes for yourself. I'm most impressed. <laughs> How on earth do you actually keep track of all of these various projects that you have to do? Because obviously in this industry, lots of people do have so-called portfolio careers and they have to wear many different hats. How do you personally manage all the different things that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, it's not easy at all. Uh, I think the headspace, in, in some senses, the biggest challenge is actually working out what not to do. When to say no. One of the best questions I've ever been asked was, Jack, do you ever say no? And that was probably the first time I said no, actually. Um, I was about <laughs> 16. I was offered a piano scholarship by a concert pianist. And I, I, in the spirit of wanting to take every opportunity, which you have to do when mm -hmm. you start, you have to say yes so much. You say yes to a three-month unpaid internship. You don't mm -hmm. live in London, but suddenly you're having to pay extortionate fares to get in and all the rest of it, which is very easy to be overlooked by big companies, I think, and by people just further on in their career. It's very easy to forget the financial insecurities that face somebody starting out particularly. Um, but for me, I was offered this piano scholarship at about 16 and my deputy head teacher took me to one side. He said, what do you want to do? And I said, I really want to be composing and presenting. And he said, so is this right for you? And that was when he said, do you ever say no? Because I was going to say yes. Mm. It would have been so intense, so intense. And I was very prescriptive. I look back on it in hindsight and the people I've interviewed you know, on my radio show, people like Lang Lang, it's Zach Perlman. I've asked them the same kind of questions about around practice. And I realise in hindsight that perhaps what I was told at 15, 16 was wrong. The practice was you do five hours of this, one hour of exercises and one hour on this piece. And it was all so measured. I was literally told to do two bars a day on one piece. It was only ever two bars, but for an hour, for an hour. And <laughs> that would have drilled the passion out of me entirely. But when I was 15 or 16, it was like, you are a respected concert pianist. This is a great piece of music by Bach. You must be right. And what I've realised is you know yourself better than anybody and you are totally different to every other human being in the planet. That's what makes us so interesting. That's what makes music so interesting because it's an expression of our individuality and what yeah, we yeah. bring. But it does also mean it's a very noisy world because everybody's got an opinion and everybody thinks they know best. And the truth is, even at 15, even at five, and even at 85, you are the person who knows yourself best. And I'm still trying to learn that. A long answer to your question. <laughs> I'm still trying to learn when to say no. Also say no to myself, actually, and say no, today is a day where you're going to do nothing related to music. You know, my weekends, I'm presenting a radio show. I still teach. I still, I mean, people don't know that, but it's because... There were people that I worked with when I was 15, 16 as a teacher who now I'm so attached. I'm like, I love seeing the progression. And it still informs what I do on the radio and my music education work and composing. You know, teaching is a massive help actually to me as well as the other way around to the, to the students. But there does come a point where you need to know where your lines are and burnout is always 
a risk, mm-hmm. I think, with a portfolio career. So knowing yourself and knowing when to say no continues to be a challenge. Do you ever experience burnout? It sounds like you've got really good boundaries with yourself now at this point. I think I, I can tell when I'm getting close now. Like before, you'd get too close to the line and then I would be totally drained. I mean, I remember when Scala Radio launched in 2019, I was behind the scenes as a producer and presenting and I was sort of helping build the station as well. So before it was announced, I was feeding in the kind of music that we played and the kind of tone and so on. And once we'd launched in March 2019, I had six months of full-time work as a producer. Then I was also presenting at the weekend and I was teaching and I was composing for orchestras and doing all sorts of you know other bits on the side, writing magazines and so on, all within a seven-day week. And I was 18, 19. After six months, I remember I, I went for a weekend away. I treated myself. I went to Canterbury. <laughs> a whole and two I, days. I, I literally... I slept the whole weekend. I didn't see Canterbury. I got into the hotel room and I fell onto the bed. The poor people I was with were like, well, that's Jack. <laughs> Jack's done. Um, and, and, and that for me was... So that's an early example of I crossed the line. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't anything that was irreparable, but it was an early important lesson that I had to learn from that you don't want to go that far. So now I, I can feel when my body is sort of saying, okay, you know, just take it a little bit easier. And I'm kinder at giving myself a morning where... I mean, I say I take the morning off. I don't have a lie-in. I'll go to the gym to rest. Mm -hmm. I'll go for a run to rest. But that sort of resets Uh, your brain, doesn't it? It just makes you feel good. Yes and no. Oh, okay. Because I go for a run (laughs) to think about a lyric. I will go. I will do another lap if I'm still if I haven't quite worked that rhyme out or or the angle for the song. So I'm not going for a run to switch off. Actually, quite the opposite. Mm. And so it's very difficult as a composer to find that place that you go to. And it could be like a different country. It could be like a bolt hole or something. Or you've got a friend who has a <laughs> flat in, you know. I mean, like my old piano teacher lives by the sea in Devon. And so that, they say, you know, come down here and use it as your retreat. So mm. I think if you can find that space where you immediately unwind and immediately relax, that's very helpful. And I'm getting better at finding those places. But that said, it's very hard to turn off ideas and you don't want to turn them off you know they're, no. they're, they're a feeder and they're exciting but there's a an element to creativity that's very natural it's tapping into your emotions and your passions but also very unnatural because it's a very heightened state of being when you're composing you are like an excited child on Christmas Eve mm-hmm. and it's joyous but in some ways entirely unnatural because you're living off adrenaline really and there will come a point where you also need to accept that You've had the high, but you will also have the low and the dip. And it's being kind to yourself in that dip that I'm still trying to learn because I feel guilty. You know, if I'm not writing or if I'm not doing something, um, oh, we all you know that shame feeling. yourself, don't you? <laughs> but that's, that's self-discipline to a point. But also, you know, what's the opposite of self-discipline? Self-relaxation, <laughs> in a way. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> but yeah, you know, when... when when so much of what you do is creating from scratch, not just the music, but all your various ideas that eventually come into fruition. If you're perpetually busy, then you haven't got space. Your ideas haven't got space to actually grow. You haven't got space for those little seedlings to turn into blossoms, you know. Yeah, an idol of mine, who I'm now lucky enough to call a mentor, said to me, remember, you've got to live life to write about it. And that is a fantastic piece of advice. Because ultimately, what are you channeling? if all you do is sit at a piano all day, every day, or if all you do is sit at your manuscript, what are you actually writing about? What experience are you feeding off? You know, that's where a portfolio career is really helpful for me because when I am in the radio world, I'm interviewing somebody amazing every week. Mm. I'm being very sociable. But equally, if I'm composing for an orchestra, I'm probably on my own in a room with a piece of paper. And that's very antisocial for a time until you get into the room with the orchestra and the conductor. So it's trying to find the balance, ultimately, but that's something that I don't think there is an answer to it. And it changes as you, as you change, as your body changes, you get older, your balance changes too. 100%. So it's ultimately being agile and kind to yourself, mm. really, because you're your own rule. I really want to ask you about your rather short-lived stint at Oxford University. <laughs> Please, could you share that story? Yeah, so I had been working throughout secondary school to get into 
Oxbridge. You know, my school, it was a state school that was very, very supportive of music, but, you know, they weren't sending <laughs> heaps of kids to Oxbridge. And mm. I loved the academic side of music. I love reading. I'm a massive geek, both about classical music, musical theatre. And I say that with pride because it's a love of the craft mm. and I respect what goes into making it you know mm-hmm. and so much knowledge and expertise and experience and pain as well as pleasure goes into making music and I never want to take that for granted I mean I look back now and I feel like I have a slight complex Ella because I'm like <laughs> I did, I was not a teenager I'm worried I'm going to be a teenager when I'm like 50 I'm going to I'm going to be that person who's suddenly wearing like a leather jacket thinking that's what teenagers wear or I'll suddenly have a fusy at 60 I don't know I've been working very much with the books because uh, I love discussing music and Oxbridge was always my goal. I was lucky enough to get a place to study music at Lady Margaret Hall in 2017. And I got there in Freshers' Week. And basically, almost as soon as I arrived, I felt like something was wrong with the timing for me. I was working with the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra as a composer in Freshers' Week. And I had to leave Oxford within two days of arriving to go and work on this commission in Liverpool. And I spent three days in Liverpool... And I thought, I've spent two days in Oxford and three days in Liverpool. And I remember looking at my emails. There were more and more commissions. I was very lucky. I was getting opportunities and offers to write for different orchestras in the UK and abroad. I had the chance to go and work with a songwriter in LA who I'd been asking advice from. And she said, if you decide not to go to university or if you get the time, fly out to LA, write with us. I couldn't do that if I was in Oxford. Mm. I have immense respect for it. They treated me with great respect because I came back from Liverpool and said, look, I don't think I've made the right decision. They said, say yes to everything. If it all goes in a different direction, you can come back this time next year and start with a blank slate. So I never matriculated. I bought the gown. <laughs> and then I returned two days later with the, the gown and the receipt. And they were like, oh, is it the wrong size? And I was like, well, I don't want to say it's the wrong university, but it's the wrong, <laughs> wrong time. Full stop. Um, so I, I never even matriculated at Oxford. Uh, but Malala Yousafzai, she was in my college, and I did have the unique experience of like having breakfast with like Malala to your left and another amazing <laughs> pianist or whatever to your right. And it's, it's an amazing space. But I will say this, there's such a pressure to go to university and it's not always the right course for creatives. So many people I interview did not go that way. And there's a whole generation prior to the current one that the traditional education was not university at all. You know, the great songwriters or George Gershwin or these were figures who literally learnt by playing. They were trying to keep up with those around them. They had a 40-year-old or a 50-year-old and their job was to try and learn from them as quickly as possible so they wouldn't be outrun. And I think there's a very helpful instinct that that taps into. Uh, The entrepreneurial spirit, the fact you have to put yourself out there, the fact that you have to be confident and be out in the real world gigging or writing or whatever. You have to do Mm. ultimately and talking about is great and I love talking about it look at me on radio <laughs> I have noticed no no sorry about that uh, but, but there's also a time for doing and mm. I, I was worried that maybe I would say no to all the opportunities to do in order to only talk and I realised that there might be a way of doing both um, and I consider everything I've done since as like a massive classroom the radio studio is my classroom mm. I'm still able to you know you're always learning and it doesn't just have to take place at university Hundred percent, and and you wouldn't have had the time or space to pursue these sort of real life opportunities with as much fervor if you had continued along that course. Yeah, I think if you're a certain type of person, and I don't mean that blowing my own trumpet, I just mean if you if you are always having ideas and you're always driving yourself quite hard, and you're already having a a level of sort of outside world interest or work, if you are the kind of person that's naturally open to opportunities or puts yourself out there and you're always coming up with ideas, they will lead you somewhere and you do need to have the space and the time to explore that. Because if you just shut everything down immediately, you'll never see where it grows and where Mm. it goes. But it's not for everybody. And university is a very helpful structure for many people. And to learn the craft and the technique, I'm always mindful I don't want to be technique deficient. I don't (laughs) want to be that guy who doesn't know the rules Mm -hmm. and then tries to break them. (laughs) But you can find mentors and you can find teachers. You know, I'm lucky I count some amazing composers and my friends and we literally just spend an afternoon going through my scores, their scores, other people's scores from the past. That is just as educational as a degree course and you don't have to spend £60,000 to do it, which is, in the current climate, 
not something to be sniffed at. University is massively expensive and there are many ways to get an education. You know, you said that you're very lucky to have lots of people around you in the business, but for anyone that might not have existing contacts, what is the first thing that you would say to those people that know that university is not necessarily for them, but they do have these ideas, they might not have the contacts at first? How do you go about getting those? Well... Honestly, so many people are reachable. I mean, every time I present a radio show, I'm giving out the show email address. Who do you think reads those emails? Certainly the producer, if not the presenter. There's so many ways to reach people. If you set up the stage, if you like, so you set up your concert series or you set up an ensemble or you do your own podcast or whatever, everybody's reachable. You know, editors of magazines literally put their email in the front page when they welcome you to the magazine because they want to hear from the audience. Like, we don't want to be in a bubble. Mm-hmm. I don't want to sit in an ivory tower in a radio studio and monologue for three hours. I want to hear from people. So it's not as much of a leap as you might think when you're starting out to contact an editor or a station manager or a head of music or whatever and then invite them to your event or send them that recording. Ask for feedback. Don't be aggressive about it. It's not, I want this from you. But in the spirit of learning, saying, you know, I am this 18-year-old composer, I've worked with so-and-so, I really appreciate you're a busy person, but I love this piece that you wrote last month. I was there in the audience If you had 15 minutes for a coffee, I would really appreciate the chance to just pick your brains. I don't want anything from you, purely advice, because I appreciate what you do, but no pressure, best wishes, Jack. And that approach, that mindset, I think is a really important one, because we're all learning from each other. I know it sounds very fluffy, but create the stage, create the opportunity, and then reach those people, email those people who you want to speak with in the spirit of asking for advice. That's the first step. Wonderful advice, thank you. Your attitude is so inspiring and infectious and you're obviously a very, very confident person. Are there ever times when you're quite hard on yourself? Oh, all the time. It's so funny. People <laughs> all think, the time, he says, with a huge like, grin on his face. You're really, well, yeah, there comes a time where there's not a grin, but that's when the door is shut. Um, I'm very, very harsh on myself. I am convinced I will never feel a success. Let, let, let's look at some examples. Why? Do, and I'm not comparing myself in any way, but actually I think it's a fundamental driver for so many creative people. You know, Shostakovich said that every composer writes the next piece because he wasn't happy with the last one, basically. <laughs> and, you know, why does somebody write nine symphonies? Why not just write one? Ultimately, it's a sense of you've got more to say. And Andre Previn described uh, music making as like a chase. And the hope is not that you catch whatever you're chasing, but that you get that little bit closer. If you can turn it into a satisfying thing that you haven't quite got there, don't make it a negative thing, oh, you're not good enough. It's that you're getting better. You're getting closer. And I I am really mean to myself. I mean, those closest to me are very aware that I can also be my own worst enemy. And I think this applies to many creative people. Yep. But there will come times where you've written a song that you just think is terrible that you've had a few weeks where all you've written is terrible, or where you just feel in radio, like every week you have to be there and sound like it's the first time you're doing it. Hello, it's Saturday afternoon at three o'clock again. (laughs) Yes, it is. Again. (laughs) You don't want to sound tired. But we're human. We get tired. And I never feel successful. You know, it's difficult. What's what's this success? What are you proudest of? I'm proud of everything, but I'm also always aware of what I want to do more. Mm. and better and different and actually the ability to step back and go that was really good I'm still working on that Let's move on to your best career high and you have chosen the Royal Opera House Fanfare Competition which was your first orchestral experience when you were 16 can you tell us a little bit about what the competition entailed? So Back in the day, it no longer is run, I'm afraid, Mm -hmm. but uh, the Royal Opera House had an annual fanfare competition where they basically blanket emailed all the state schools in the country and wanted to offer, I think, about 10 young people each year from state secondary schools the chance to write a piece for the orchestra of the Royal Opera House and the then music director, Antonio Papano. I'd never written for an orchestra before. I had written for small chamber groups, largely self-taught as a composer. I'd started to enter sort of 
you know, EPTA UK, European Piano Teachers Association competitions as a composer. (laughs) So suddenly I was in a room with like 20 people having my music played. I'd never written for an orchestra before. Saw this email come through to the school. The music teacher said, you're writing ditties. Would you like to write a ditty for an orchestra? You should consider this. And in the spirit, basically, I think the best thing to ask yourself at that point or say to yourself is, why not? I had nothing to lose. I had nothing really to prove as well. I just had an opportunity that I could learn from. So I went home and I wrote, in probably about an hour, uh, a piece for two bassoons and two trumpets because I was like, that's an attention-grabbing ensemble. I always feel sorry for the bassoon, just dum-dum-dum. I was like, come on, bassoon. And I made the trumpets. Justice for bassoons. I was like, let's mute the trumpets and get them to accompany and the bassoon will take the melody. Take that, fanfare trumpets. Fanfare bassoons more like. And, um, and I wrote this little piece and sent it off and didn't think anything of it. I thought, well, you know, there'll be far more experienced composers than me. Anyway, I was chosen, so I orchestrated that fanfare for a 60-piece Royal Opera House orchestra, came into the recording session at the Royal Opera House. That, by the way, was the first time I went to an opera house, which is nuts. I'd never seen an opera before. I'd never been in the Royal Opera House before, and there I was going in as a composer. That, for me, is again, that's not me blowing my own trumpet or bassoon, um, (laughs) but, but, but that's actually blowing the trumpet at the Royal Opera House. You know, these these buildings, and for other people to kind of take away from it, these buildings are incredibly open and accessible and open-minded and wanting to find new young people, new audiences and so on. We are outward-looking. Musicians have to be. We're soaking up the world around us and channeling it. We have to be looking outwards. And it was such a fantastic experience that because they recorded the fanfare and then it was paired with an opera so everybody was paired with an opera that was being staged that season i was paired with bellini's norma and then my fanfare was piped through the opera house to call audience members to their seats oh. for the performance so instead of a bell yeah. they had a they had a, a new piece a new commission so it's played probably about i don't know 20 30 40 times it was like you know it was a lot because they, they they used it beyond the opera as well so it was just played in the foyer oh very cool um, so uh, that experience then, of course, I had a recording of the music, which was very important, and I'll say that to any aspiring radio presenters as well. Keep recordings of your work, because it's your shop window, it's your way of measuring how you've developed over time. You can listen back, other people can listen back and give you pointers. I had a recording that I could take elsewhere of my first orchestral piece, mm. and that was then how I worked for Classic FM as one of their 25th birthday composers within a year, because they had heard that recording, and that commission was to then work with... Well, originally a brass group, and then I did another piece for an orchestra off the back of the Royal Opera House project. So that was like a trampoline. It was a launch pad. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to have the sort of the encouragement of those kind of musicians and that level of musicians was a massive confidence boost. You asked me about confidence earlier on. I wasn't born with confidence. Mm. You develop it by putting yourself out there and being knocked back as well. Like, don't get me wrong, I entered loads of things that they said no as well. But the one time they say yes, that's a massive confidence boost and that can propel you into the next project. You mentioned just now that the Royal Opera House and these similar organisations are very open and they're always looking for new talent. Is that still the same case today? Do you think there are enough opportunities for young composers who might have been at that same age as you, 15, 16, to work with orchestras at any rung of the professional ladder? I think there are loads of opportunities, but as ever, not always as well communicated as they could be. There are fantastic charities out there, Music for Youth, Youth Music, Ivers Academy, uh, Orchestras for All, uh, Music in Secondary Schools Trust, I could go on, uh, who support young people with whether it's access to free instruments or tuition or in the case of Music for Youth, live stages and feedback. Um, They all provide really, really useful support, but Many schools just don't know they exist. I think the problem lies within the actual school system and the curriculum itself. Uh, Bluntly, there isn't as wide an awareness or knowledge of the musical sector, and particularly classical music, among teachers Mm -hmm. and the curriculum. It's not built in the same way that science or maths are, and it's not perceived in the same way. That We've still got this overhang that music and the arts are a hobby, and you you can't basically make a living from it. And when you talk about careers and next steps, very often <laughs> that's like law. Would you like to work in a bank? <laughs> but they're not saying, do you want to be a radio presenter? They're not saying it because I, I literally, I remember a very well-known radio presenter telling me when I was about 16, 17, to just don't try and be a radio presenter, Jack. There are no jobs going. You know, you don't create a show, you take a show. It's never going to happen. You know, you're 16, 17. Who would trust you? 
And then I just scarlet by 19. So it's like, uh, you know, it, it's... In your face, famous <laughs> radio presenter. No, 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 no. And they were very supportive and very encouraging once I proved that I could do it. But that's, that's the danger. You have to prove to yourself that it's possible. There's not the framework there where if you are musically talented you are suddenly spotted and, you know, channeled in a way, you know, other, other countries are far more respecting, I think, of the arts. Um, and the education system has the arts far close to the heart of their planning mm. than we do in the UK. Yes. And that's, that leaves education to chance, and that is wrong. If you show the right skills and the right mindset, crucially, then you've got the potential, and that should be spotted and nurtured. But the truth is schools have so much going on and so many strains on their budgets music is rarely the priority and that means there are so much wasted talent um, and wasted opportunities but I do think one of the big challenges is communicating what is there mm. because there is amazing work going on with orchestras outreach projects I benefited from so many I mean the London Philharmonic Orchestra I did a Soundworks project with them which was free to enter and I ended up collaborating with young dancers from Rombert Dance Company we staged a piece at the Royal Festival Hall oh, wow. and we had members of the LPO performing now, as far as I'm aware, they still do plenty of community outreach, school projects, care homes, you know, all mm. ages. But it's knowing that they're there. And many of the schools and teachers don't, I feel, know, know these opportunities exist. So would you say that it's a useful thing for people to do, to actually just go, for example, straight to the website of these orchestras and see what they're doing? Is that a good way to find out? I do. I mean, it comes back to knowledge. I do think, you know, there's plenty that you can do at a keyboard as in a laptop and see what people are doing and, and many of these opportunities have to be free you know mm. for the groups to qualify for arts council funding whatever it is you know it, it has to be accessible genuinely mm. and there is a genuine drive to reach people so I do think educating yourself around the opportunities and the organisations it frustrates me sometimes when you know somebody gets in touch with me and asks for advice and I try and be as sort of helpful and generous as, as I can because plenty of people have been that for me um, that said Sometimes you sit down for a chat and you realise that this person has, has a no knowledge at all. They, they could have just looked at your website. Mm. They could have just... Uh, wanting to be a radio presenter and then asking you if anybody listens to radio anymore. And you think, <laughs> well, if you, if you looked at the statistics, a very quick Google would tell you that 90% of UK adults listen to national radio every week. You should come to a conversation with a radio person knowing that. Yeah. So there's, a, there's an element of self-education. It's not the whole picture, but it is the starting point. I'd like to pick up on something else you said as well, which was that as a composer or broadcaster, always keep recordings of your work. If someone doesn't have the resources, doesn't own the resources themselves to make a recording or to find people to record their stuff, how could they go about finding that? Well, it sounds very obvious, but even with a phone and a laptop and a voice recorder. I mean, I've been amazed when I've gone to, you know, very professional setups and projects and then actually they've ended up using a Mac. Or so. I mean, you know... Oh, really? Oh, oh, seriously, hit songs, hit songs are made on a laptop. You know, you think you need Abbey Road and Abbey Road is amazing and so on. But, but there's so much that you can do on a laptop or with your phone. And if you're wanting to be a podcaster, you know, recording through the phone recorder... A USB microphone is probably 80 to £100. Pounds. Plug that into a laptop. Subscribe to Adobe Audition, which is about £20 pounds a month. So for £20 pounds a month and then the £100 pound price for your microphone, you've got a setup that could be used on national radio, could be used for a podcast. And that is a very, very good starting point or Audacity or whatever, which is free, mm -hmm, I think. Mm -hmm, yeah. um, so there are plenty of ways to, to get started in a way that doesn't compromise on quality at all. Mm. I would also say as, as a performer and from a composing point of view, I don't know how I feel about this, to be honest with you. I'm not massively active on social media because I'd much rather be out in the real world actually, you know, <laughs> doing things and seeing real people's faces and eyes uh, rather than another screen. Um, <laughs> but it's a great way to get visibility, it's true. Uh, there are plenty of pianists and composers who know how to use social media and TikTok and videos, Instagram reels and all the rest of it, where if you know who you're trying to reach and what you're trying to say about yourself, it can be a really great showcase. If you're trying to sort of get people's attention, social media is the way you can hook them. I suppose my worry is that it becomes the be-all and end-all. You sort of become a social media musician rather than, 
you know, just because you've got loads of followers on TikTok doesn't mean you're playing at Carnegie Hall. Mm. So they don't always translate, but it is a good way to get people's attention. So again, as a starting point, you could look at making little videos for YouTube or TikTok or Instagram and then use that as the starting point when you write to that editor or that station manager or that presenter or musician as the, here's an example of my work, would love to hear your thoughts, would love some advice. They're a starting point. It's not the end result, but it is somewhere to begin. We're going to talk about your career low now. And this is very intriguing because you've picked something quite general as opposed to a specific experience. The perception of youth in relation to contracts and money. Can you explain what you meant by that? I think there is an inherent generosity to the creative world and the classical world, which is brilliant. People are great at giving advice and genuinely want to help you and want a positive future for classical music. That's great. The will is there. However, it is very, very easy for a big corporation or an established name, be that a company or a person, to forget that when you're 16 or 17, as they probably did when they were 16 or 17, something like a train fare and paying for your own lunch, all of this adds up. And, you know, I mean, I had friends who were earning like £4 an hour working at a high street chain shop. So the idea of, oh, well, it was only £10 to get to London or it was only £10 to get into Birmingham on the train. Actually, if you're earning £4 an hour, that's a lot. That is a lot of work that you've put in to earn a train ride. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's very easy for people more established to forget what it was like when you started. You remember the, the hunger, you remember the ambition, you remember the drive and the joyous things, but you forget the practical, boring bits that are actually in many ways equally important. Like, how did you pay your rent? Or how did you afford to go to university? Or how did you afford to get to that interview for that job or that position? And then the other side of it as well is I think there's an awareness that it's competitive. There's an awareness that lots of people are trying to get that gig at the Wigmore Hall or get that show on whatever radio station. And you don't want that to be traded on. You don't want people to think, oh, well, you're just lucky. Do you know what I mean? You're, you're, you're here because you're lucky. You know, you're lucky I gave you that job. You're lucky you got that gig. This has never been said to me directly, by the way. But I was asked, when I was about 18 or 19, I was asked to do things for free. And at that point, that's when my line was saying no. It was all right when you were 15 or 16 because it was the first time you were doing it. You were unproven, you were untested. They were taking the risk. Mm-hmm. Now, the relationship is imbalanced. It's now me taking the risk in a way because I'm losing money to give you a piece of music that you have asked from me. So there comes a point where you have to know your own worth and it doesn't matter if you're 19 or not. This group have asked you to provide this service, if we put it really bluntly. They've asked you for a reason, not somebody else. So there comes a point where you shouldn't just think, oh, I'm so lucky to be doing this. I'm so lucky to have work from my passion. Because it should be paying you at that point. It is a job. It is a passion. It is a calling. But you are providing something that other people can't. I remember I once taught a lesson where I was told it wouldn't be uh, £50, it would be £47.50 because that's what they were comfortable paying for a piano teacher. And I remember thinking, if you had an electrician come round and they charge you a £150 call-out, would you say, actually, no, 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 I'm going to pay you £145 because that's what I think this is? No, you wouldn't. And there's just a different way of treating musicians and a different way of treating young people that I think needs to be addressed Mm. and reset. And it comes from us as well as the young person, if you like, challenging it. Yes, you're grateful for the opportunity, but there also comes a point where you need to know that you are giving something back. You're not just getting, you are giving. And ideas are worth something, and you need to look after yourself and protect yourself and know that you are worth something, ultimately. Yeah, it's so true what you say about the musicians' side of it also perpetuating this whole thing. And it's really difficult because we're in an industry where there isn't always abundant funding. In fact, there so rarely is. How do you go about determining your own worth or your own fees, what you should be charging for something? Did you have ways of helping yourself come to a specific conclusion? My answer is getting it wrong for me, personally. Like, I learned by getting it wrong, kicking myself, going, oh... Now I know, because in hindsight, I've met other people who are suddenly... And don't get me wrong, it's it's all relative to what it requires of you, the time, the knowledge. But you do have to remember 
that you have a very specific skill set. You are doing something as a composer, say, for an orchestra that, you know, again, not, not in an arrogant way, but few people, relatively few people can do. So you need to acknowledge that the skills that equip you to do that job were learnt over a lifetime. Even if it took you, like, five hours, that doesn't mean it was easy. Bart Howard, who wrote Fly Me to the Moon, said it took me 20 years to work out how to write a song in 20 minutes. <laughs> and and so your fee should reflect the fact that, OK, it took me an hour to write that song, but it took me a lifetime to learn how to write that song in 20 minutes or an hour. You know, you, you need to think what it's asking of you um, and and what, what feels reasonable. I personally, from a fee point of view, I mean, you can Google, you know, Musicians Union, they do have basic rates that are shown for sort of accompanists and yes, teachers right. and so on. Personally, I think part of the answer is also speaking with your friends. It's building up a community of people where you trust one another to actually talk about those things. Some of these contracts, it's written in uh, that you can't talk about your fee. Because then, in effect, the competition know how much they have to pay to get you. Yes, exactly. So I I totally understand the practical Mm. business realities of why they do that. But it also encourages us to be very... And there's a British thing, I think. I I don't think we should overlook that, of a sort of like, we can't talk about money. Do you know what I mean? No, no, let's not talk about that. And the truth is, ultimately, you do have to pay your rent at some point. And, you know, right now, I'm at the point where I, I want to actually, like, buy a house and have a house and have a life that doesn't sort of feel like an overhang. Much as I love being in the family home, I still live at home. Mm. And all of those things, like you're in this weird in-between phase and you need to know that you're worth something. Speaking with friends about it, not having money is a dirty word, Googling those musicians' union rates and, yes, sometimes getting it wrong, but not getting it wrong again. That's what I would say. Is there a specific area across the different things that you do where you find this is more common? In terms of... Lack of transparency. or Lack of transparency and also just a sort of perhaps lack of willingness to pay you properly. It's a good question. I don't think that there's one area necessarily. I think you just find that there are certain groups who are really lovely to work with, actually. I've found journalism, writing for magazines, actually really on it and positive. Because they say, I want this number of words, I want this. It's all very exact, you know, I want this number of words, I need it by this date, and it's this fee. And you say yes or no. With something like, say, a musical, you don't earn money out of a musical until there's an audience, bluntly. Uh, It's very, very hard to monetize a musical until you have an audience. And it's a big beast, so it requires a lot of cash investment, and not necessarily investment in you, it's investment in the piece. So it's a sacrifice. So it's different models for different areas, I suppose, and different expectations for you. But I have found the way journalism works and print media, it's very transparent from the beginning. Whereas with composing, you could compose the same piece your whole life, couldn't you? You could spend your whole life writing one work if you wanted to, (laughs) and if you're that much of a perfectionist, which I definitely am. Uh, Whereas an article has to be printed at some point. What barriers might stand in the way of a young person being appropriately valued for their work? Perception, number one. A good idea is a good idea. And you need to protect your ideas. Yes, when you're starting out, you want to share them because you want them to become a reality and you can't make it happen on your own. I shared ideas that suddenly suspiciously resurfaced a few years later, but with a very famous name attached to it. And you think, I'm not saying that that was somebody consciously taking it. But everything that we say, we absorb. And that idea was lodged in somebody's subconscious. And then two years later, maybe there's a meeting and they think they've had a great idea. They don't realise it was something they heard from someone else. You know, not accusatory at all, but you have to share your ideas to get them somewhere. Uh, But you also have to be protective and know that they are worth something. You know, from a composing point of view, on a very boring practical note, it's registering everything with PRS. But then equally, I know composers, maybe less so now... Some very established composers will refuse to listen to like material that's sent to them by a young or aspiring composer because they don't want to accidentally hear it and then accidentally rip it off. I did hear a story of one composer who supposedly only ever listened to their own music because they only ever wanted to, if it happened, accidentally steal from themselves. <laughs> but I mean, how, how you could do that? You know, we don't live in isolation and the more music you hear, the better, really. It's, it's, a, it's a feeder, not in a sinister way. Um, but I think you you do have to put yourself out there, but also acknowledge that there are risks of doing that. Mm. Um, So take the precautions you can, register things with PRS, have a nice video recording of the premiere or something with a clear date and all the rest of it, 
and keep recordings of all your work. And if your brain is organised, you can then be organised if something happens. We'll just finish with our end segment, Closed Circuit, which is where you answer a question from a previous guest. Your question today is, if you had the chance to redo the last 10 years of your life, what would you do differently? I would go to more parties. (laughs) I know that sounds really stupid. And the truth is, if I had my time again, I probably wouldn't. I would still I would still not go to parties. But in my mind, my 24-year-old brain, I I just I feel like I was so focused on getting to Oxford and so focused on I want to be successful. And this did not come from my family or my school. They were incredibly loving and incredibly supportive. I just drive myself very hard in every respect because I want to know I'm doing everything I can to be the best version of myself I can be. And that I think sometimes drove me so hard in my teens, I forgot to be a teenager. I love it when I meet like a 14-year-old who's signed a Deutsche Grammophon who says that he plays football every Saturday. I love that. And don't get me wrong, not everybody says that. (laughs) Some people I'll text, oh, what are you up to? Practicing all the time. And I get, like, you have to put the hours in. But it's a balance. Everything is a balance. And I don't think I necessarily said yes enough to the normal life stuff. I always had two categories. So if it was a work opportunity, yes, 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 yes. If it's a friend saying, come round, "Mm, I'm afraid I've got a work thing the next day. And there should be a balance between the two. And if you can learn that early, you'll be on a healthy foundation. Jack, I can't wait for your rebellious teenager phase in your mid-50s. Well, yeah, leather jacket (laughs) stalls beware. (laughs) You've been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Classical Circuit. If you enjoyed this episode, please do take a second to leave a rating or hit the follow button as those things really help with visibility. And for more updates, you can follow us on Instagram at The Classical Circuit. And you'll also be able to listen to this episode on the Violin Channel's website. And that is theviolinchannel.com. Thanks again and see you next time.